But I want to begin today by talking to you about a phrase that I think a lot of us have used when describing the experience of someone else. We said, man, they are on top of the world. We said, hey, he's on top of the world. She's on top of the world. They're on top of the world. And we've used this phrase to indicate that somebody has reached the top of their uh, specific vocation. They've reached the top when it comes to their specific career or, or their work, that they've, they've made it. And if anybody had experienced that, uh, Paula Ferris did. Paula was a, a, a television journalist, and in 2015, she reached the top. Paula was named the new weekend co-host of Good Morning America. She was also named co-host of ABC's The View. So at the same time, she was on uh, morning television's most popular program, Good Morning America, and she was on daytime television's most popular program, The View. That was her life every single day. She had reached the top. But if Paula was honest, she would have told you back then that she was working incredible hours. Many times she was working 14, 21 days straight, all the while trying to balance being at the top of her profession with being a wife and a mother. And everything came to a head in 2018. You see, in 2018, Paula landed the interview of her life, an interview that that multiple news networks and anchors had been fighting for, and she got that interview. Well, on the same day that she had this, this, you know, game-changing interview, Paula also had a miscarriage. And that miscarriage led to emergency surgery. And that event kickstarted an incredibly difficult season of Paula's life. In five months, she had a miscarriage that led to emergency surgery. While reporting, someone threw an object at her at 60 miles an hour, hit her in the head, and gave her a concussion. She was out of work for three weeks. While she was recovering, she was in a head-on car collision. And then a few weeks later, she got influenza that turned into pneumonia, all in five months. Miscarriage, concussion, car accident, influenza, pneumonia. Paula said later, it was like she was saying to God, okay, God, you've got my attention. (laughs) It didn't take all that, but I'm listening. I'm paying attention. And it was in that time period that Paula began to experience God speaking to her as a follower of Jesus. And she felt like God was leading her to do something that she knew no one would understand. No one would comprehend, would make sense to no one. Paula felt like God was saying that she needed to leave those top of the mountain places behind. So in the same day, Paula announced that she was leaving the view and leaving Good Morning America. She was stepping back into a different role that would allow her to move into a different phase of her life. A lot of people didn't make make sense to them. They didn't understand it. But Paula began to reflect in that time period that she wasn't sure that she knew who she was apart from these two roles. That she really didn't know what her purpose in life was apart from these two roles. And later on, Paula reflected about this time period and, and what she learned. And she said this. She said, I learned that your work isn't your worth. Your value isn't your vocation, and your career isn't your calling. She summarized a lot of what she learned in a book she put out earlier this year called Called Out, and she talked about how she has been on a journey to learn about the, the purpose each of us have in our lives 
apart from these places that we tend to locate it. See, I think Paul's experience is an experience that maybe you and I can relate to. I know I certainly do. I often feel burdened down trying to understand my purpose. And it's hard sometimes to comprehend it beyond the roles that I have, the titles that I have, the jobs that I do. But I so related to to Paula's words there when she said, your work isn't your worth, your value isn't your vocation, your career isn't your calling. Because for many of us, that has been our experience. And so if we woke up tomorrow and we couldn't do that job anymore, who would we be? If we woke up tomorrow and we were tired for that, from that job and no one was calling and no one was emailing and no one was needing us, who would we be? If those kids that you're raising one day grow up and hopefully they will and move out, who will you be? And for many of us, that, that question, those questions, who am I? What is my purpose? Become a burden that weighs us down. And for many of us, this becomes the place that we experience the greatest amount of spiritual attack. Because we begin to think, if we're not struggling with defining it in those ways, we begin to think that who we are and what we do doesn't matter. Many of us begin to think that we're just living a groundhog day where over and over we do the same things. And we wonder, does this matter? Does, does my purpose matter? Do I matter? And as we've been talking this summer about flourishing, one of the things I've become convicted of is this, that you and I cannot flourish when the dominant voice in our heads says what you do and who you are doesn't matter. If there's a loud voice going off in your head today that says what you do and who you are doesn't matter, you will not flourish. And what I want to talk to you today about is the truth that what you do and who you are matters more than you realize. We've been in a series, as I said, for the last three weeks called Flourish. And we've been talking about in a time in which we're seeing a a global pandemic, economic um, breakdowns, racial and social unrest, political tensions, and a season as a church where we're not meeting together in person. We've been saying, you might think with all that happening that the last thing that we could do is flourish. But according to the scriptures, flourishing is not about our circumstances. It's not a circumstantial thing. It's much bigger than that. And we've said over the last few weeks that flourishing is about having an awareness of God's presence, that God really is with us right now if we will awaken to it and become aware of it. And when we do that, that changes how we experience this moment. We said last week that we won't flourish without people, that if we have a relentless commitment to others and others have a relentless commitment to us, that we can flourish when we are not alone. And as you might guess, today is another P. It's purpose. And here's today's big idea, that in order to flourish, we need a purpose that's bigger than us. In order to flourish, we need a purpose that is bigger than us. And today what I want to do is I want to talk to you about how you discern whether that purpose is big enough. Now, in the time that I have today, there is no way that I can help you answer the question fully, what is your purpose? That's a lifelong pursuit, and it's complex, and frankly, I'm still figuring it out. But what I want to do today 
is I want to help you discern with some guardrails whether the purpose that you are uh, evaluating and pursuing is worthy of your life. And to do that, I want to share with you three signs that your purpose is too small. Three warning signs that you might experience to go, man, I think what I'm living for is too small. And I think for many of us, the challenge we have is not living for a purpose that's too big. It's living for a purpose that's too small. And so here's the first sign that your purpose is too small. If you can accomplish your purpose without God's involvement, it's too small. The first sign that your purpose is too too small is if you can do it without God's involvement, it's too small. And we see an example of all three of these signs in a positive way in the story of a man in the Old Testament called Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible today, I want to encourage you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. You say, Scott, where's Nehemiah? Well, if you have a physical Bible, open to the middle, you'll hit Psalms, go towards the front, you'll pass Job, and then Esther, and then you'll see Nehemiah. If you're on a digital Bible and you're scrolling down, it's Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah. I wanted to get that right. I saw a video a couple weeks ago with Jamie Foxx that went viral, and he got all the books of the Old Testament in order. And I wanted to make sure that Jamie didn't have one on me. So, Nehemiah chapter 1 is our context. And if you've never read Nehemiah before, if it's been a minute, to quote our leaving pastor, Jamie, Nehemiah is, is set in an incredibly difficult time. Nehemiah is a man, he's known as a cupbearer, and literally his job is to ensure that the king is not poisoned through his food. Nehemiah is living in Persia under the reign of King Cyrus, and he gets a a news report as a Jew about what's happening in their homeland. And in the Jewish homeland, the the city of Jerusalem has been mostly destroyed. There are people living there, but it's a shell of its former place. There's no walls around the city. The temple has not been rebuilt. And it isn't just a problem of buildings. It's a problem of confidence. The people's confidence is as broken as their walls and is in disrepair just as the temple is. And Nehemiah gets this report in the first few verses of Nehemiah. We pick up the the text in verse 4. He says, when I heard these words about how broken down everything was, I sat down and I wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his glorious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins that we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. He's acknowledging the reason why he's in Persia, the reason why he's in exile because of their sin. Now go to verse 11. He says, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. Now, what we see here is that Nehemiah is overwhelmed by what his people are facing and the circumstances in Jerusalem. And the very first thing he does is he weeps and he prays. He fasts, which is a sign of spiritual desperation. 
And Nehemiah does what I think a lot of us would like to think we would do in a moment of, of desperation and difficulty. He turns upward to God. But I think many of us turn in all the wrong directions. When overwhelmed, many of us, we turn inward to ourselves and we go, okay, how am I going to solve this problem? We turn, we turn outward to the people around us. We go, hey, I'm going to gossip about this problem. or I'm going to bemoan this problem. I'm going to try to get people's help to solve this problem. Many of us turn downward and we think of despair and worry and doubt and discouragement because of the problems we're facing. But what Nehemiah does is he turns upward in faith and he says, God, hear my prayers. May your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to my prayers and the situation of my people. And you can already tell by the end of verse 11 here, where he says, give your servant success today, that he has a sense of what he's going to do. He has a sense of an idea, but before he even voices that idea, he turns to God in prayer, and he knows that without God's involvement, his idea is not going anywhere. Now, now Nehemiah's life happened hundreds of years before Jesus' did, hundreds of years before the New Testament was written, but I think Nehemiah knew exactly what the Apostle Paul knew, that you and I are created on purpose, for a purpose, that we were saved from something and saved for something. And we see a great picture of this in Ephesians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. Your translation may say masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. What Paul is saying is what Nehemiah experienced. That all of us were created by God on purpose, for a purpose. He says here in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that we were saved by grace, not our own works. There's no boasting in the church. There's no boasting in the kingdom because none of us have anything to be boasting in. We wouldn't be here without God's gift. But, but Paul also says, in addition to being saved from something, you're now saved for something. You have a purpose. You were made by God for good works. And he prepared in advance for you to do them. And so if you're going to fulfill your purpose, you cannot achieve it without God's involvement. Because he's the one who saved you. He's the one who created you. And he knows why you're here. And this is why it's so important for you to recognize this, because many of you have been told that you were an accident. Some of you may think that I, I just showed up by accident in my, my family. My parents weren't planning for me to show up. Here's what I want you to know. You may have been a surprise to your family, but you were not a surprise by God. You may have been an accident in the moment, according to your parents, but God did not make you on accident. Friends, you have a part to play in God's story, and that story involves you, but it is so much bigger than you. You're involved. You're, you're a cast member in the story of God. And God has good works that he prepared and planned in advance for you to do. And I don't know about you, but when, when I get a sense of that, 
it becomes so overwhelming. In the, in the times in my life where I've had a sense of a purpose or a plan or something God wanted to do through me, I was overwhelmed. That, that first moment that they put my son in my arms— a little over eight years ago, and I was like, I'm supposed to take care of this little person? I was overwhelmed. There have been so many moments in my life as a pastor that I've been overwhelmed. As a husband, when I realized the responsibility and opportunity I had to help my wife become who God made her to be and the responsibilities I had towards her, I was overwhelmed. And in those moments where I realized what it really would require for me to be a loving, caring, faithful friend, I've been overwhelmed. On so many occasions, my prayer to God has been this, God, I cannot do this without you. And I told you, I'm not here to help you decipher and discern and fully understand your purpose today. But I will tell you this, if in pursuing what you think your purpose is, you are not regularly praying these words, God, I can't do this without you, I think you are living for a purpose that is far too small. Because your life was not intended to be lived without God's involvement. I love what Marianne Williamson says. She says, until your knees finally hit the floor, you're just playing at life. And on some level, you're scared because you know you're just playing. The moment of surrender is not when life is over. It's when life begins. And if you've not surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've not turned it over to him, if you haven't had one of those moments where you said, God, I can't do this without you, I wonder if you're just playing at life. Because that moment of surrender, that's the moment when everything exciting begins. So the first sign that you're living for a purpose that's too small is if you can live your purpose without God's involvement. Number two, if you can accomplish your purpose alone, it's too small. If you can accomplish the purpose you're pursuing with your life by yourself, it's not worthy of your life. And we see this in Nehemiah's story. So turn to Nehemiah chapter 2 if you have your Bible still open. Nehemiah 2 says, After I arrived in Jerusalem. So he leaves where he is in Persia and he goes to Jerusalem where all this is happening. And after I'd been there three days, I got up at night, took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I'm assuming it was a horse. So I went up at night by the way of the valley and I inspected the wall, the one that he'd been told was broken down. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. In verse 16, he says, the officials that he went with did not know where I had gone or what I was doing for I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work with him. I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's walls so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of God had been upon me and what the king had said to me. We'll cover that in a second. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. 
So Nehemiah hears this word in the beginning of chapter one. The walls are broken down. The city is broken down. The people have no confidence and he feels overwhelmed. So he reaches out to God and says, God help. And God shows up. The king of Persia says, yeah, Nehemiah, you can go rebuild the wall and I'll send a military escort to get you there safely. I'll send letters so you can have access to my forest to cut down trees, to rebuild the walls and rebuild the gates. And now Nehemiah is saying to the leaders with him, guys, I can't do this without you. I need your help. And they say, yeah, let's do this together. Nehemiah was not going to accomplish this purpose by himself. If it was just Nehemiah rebuilding the wall, it would have taken him years and decades But he said, I'm not going to do this purpose alone. I need you. And friends, if if nothing else has happened in 2020 for you, I hope you have had a wake-up call that you cannot do this life alone. Because if you were lonely and isolated before COVID, I guarantee you that you're lonely and isolated now. If you were trying to live your purpose by yourself, I... I absolutely believe that you're more discouraged now than you were then. And I hope that in our efforts and excitement to get back to normal, we don't move back into isolation, but we recognize that we cannot do this alone. A couple weeks ago, I heard an incredibly encouraging story. I was actually on vacation. I came back and heard this story. There's a family in our church, the, the Jansen family. And uh, Nick and Danielle have, have gotten involved and they serve uh, in our ministries. And, and their parents recently moved here. Nick's parents did. And his mother, Robin Jansen, was diagnosed with cancer. And, and she began to prepare for a surgery and chemotherapy. She was isolated uh, in that period. A friend of hers had come to stay with her and support her. And they were talking about some of Robin's favorite songs, her favorite worship songs. Her friend Robin, Robin's friend had this idea. Hey, do you know anybody who can play guitar and sing? It'd be great if they could come and, and, and sing for you. And so word reached Pastor Jamie on our team. And Jamie's heart is just so big to serve, not just on stage and under lights, but in every opportunity that Jamie gathered some friends and they went over to the Jansen house one day and surprised Robin And they recorded this video of the moment of them leading worship for her. I want to show you a a portion of that video right now. There you are. Who are all you guys? So is Robin right? You guys are from church. We're from church. So I'm Jamie. I know Jamie. local worship leaders in town um, and we know Nick and uh, Nick said that Alden is that my Alden Hallelujah, louder than the 
story encouraged me so much uh, because it reminded me that there are moments where we all get discouraged. Maybe it's a result of cancer. Maybe it's a result of COVID. Maybe it's a result of, of past wounds and hurts in your life that you've allowed yourself to get isolated. And none of us will fulfill the purpose God has for us by ourselves. And so if you're trying to do this thing called life and do those good works God created you for alone— you're going to have a moment where you recognize, man, I need people. I can't do this by myself. And it took courage for, for those people to reach out and say, hey, I, I need some help. But their, ans- their request was answered in such a powerful way that even their neighbors noticed. In the back of that final image, you'll notice there were some neighbors out in the street who came by and heard about it. And they began watching these services online because of that moment. Don't underestimate how God might use a team of people coming together to love and support and encourage each other in a moment like this. Let me show you the third and final sign this morning. If your purpose allows you to spend time fighting and listening to discouraging voices, it's too small. If your purpose leaves time and space for you to get caught up in fights and battles, and if it allows you to listen to discouraging voices, your purpose it's too small. Let me read to you maybe my favorite section of the whole book in Nehemiah. It's in Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah 6, beginning in verse 1, says this. When Sanballat and Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, this is Nehemiah speaking, heard that I had rebuilt the wall and there was no gap left in it, though at the time I had not installed the doors in the city gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. They were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing important work and I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. Sanballat sent me this message a fifth time by his aide who had an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem agrees that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you are rebuilding the wall. According to these reports, you are to become their king and they've even set up the prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf. There is a king in Judah. These rumors will be heard by the king, so come, let's confer together. Then I replied to him, there is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind. For they were trying to intimidate us. They will drop their hands, they said, from their work, and it'll never be finished. But now, my God, strengthen my hands. You see, in, in living out our purpose, the stakes are high. The stakes are incredibly high and we know that we are pursuing God's purpose for our lives when we begin to experience opposition. And so again and again, these people, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the boys, they're trying to discourage Nehemiah and his people and they send these messages. And in verse three of Nehemiah six, he says, I can't come down because I'm doing an important work. 
The word for important in Hebrew is the word gadol, and it means important or great in terms of magnitude and extent. And so what Nehemiah is saying, guys, I'd love to come talk to you. I'd love to show up at your meeting. I'd love to get distracted. But guess what? This is too important. The work that we are doing here is too massive for me to spend my life on this little insignificant thing. And he says, I'm not going to allow myself to get distracted because I know what's at stake. And what's at stake is rebuilding this wall, a wall that they rebuilt in 50 plus days. In, In less than two months, the problem was solved because the people came together. But recognize that in coming together, they faced opposition. And we, like the people in Nehemiah's book, have spiritual enemies, and they tempt us in similar ways. They tempt us with distraction and discouragement and conflict. Today, as you're pursuing the purposes God has for your life, you're going to face distraction. You're going to face discouragement, and there is going to be opportunities for conflict. And so I just wonder today, what's your distraction? What is the thing that is tempting you the most to get off course when it comes to your purpose? What's the thing that's distracting you from the very purposes God has for your life? I don't know what yours is. I'm praying that God will speak to you about that today as I speak to you. But I think one of the ones that many of us are falling victim to is online fights. Battles online where we go at it with each other. Now, the sad truth is I know very few people who have changed their mind on an important topic in the comment section of a Facebook post. I know very few people who said, oh my gosh, you were so harsh and critical and demeaning of me that I think you're right. I must be wrong. It so so rarely happens, but yet we find ourselves getting caught up and distracted in these battles. Many of us have have gotten distracted in this time by cynicism and negativity and a critical spirit. And and, and I can relate. There was a season in my life where I was as harsh a critic as anybody. But God began to convict me. God began to speak to me. and, And God began to show me that if I gave myself to that, then I would spend my life tearing down things rather than building them. And I love what Jenny Allen says. She said, someone asked me recently, how do you overcome cynicism? My response, start building things. Then there's no energy to tear down. See, if, if Paul was right in Ephesians 2.10, and you're God's workmanship, and he created you to do good works that he planned in advance for you to do, then your purpose is about building something, building people. And if you spend your life tearing people down and tearing things down, then you will settle for a purpose that is far too small. Friends, we can't let ourselves get caught up in these arguments because what we're saying is that the purpose of our life is really small. We're saying God's wrong and we're saying that he's missed it. So I wonder today how you might finish the sentence. My purpose today is this. This is the task that God has given me to accomplish as a way to love him and love the people he's made. What is the purpose that God has for you today? What's your best sense of it? 
And let me tell you what I think the place to start is. The path to understanding your purpose begins with becoming like Jesus. It begins with you surrendering yourself to him and saying, God, make me like Jesus. Build me into someone who looks like Jesus. And as that happens, I believe he's going to begin to reveal things that you've never seen before. So today, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to think about what is your best understanding of that purpose. Normally, this again would be kind of, uh, you know, time to interact in the lobby or in the service. Sometimes it was like next steps. Mm -hmm. So first off, do you have any like next steps? Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple things I would encourage you to walk through. And again, I said at the beginning of the message that this, uh, this could be a whole entire series. You know, there's a number of books and, and studies that have been written on this. But the three steps I'd encourage you to take today in light of what we heard are, are these, beginning with number one. If we could jump ahead to the next steps, that'd be awesome. Our team is doing a great job today navigating uh, some really big technical difficulties. So uh, we could jump next steps. Number one is this. Identify uh, your purpose for today, this season, or your life. And I just want to encourage you that even if you don't know what your purpose is, like for your whole life, I think it's possible to say, hey, my purpose today is this or in this season is this. And that may be where you start. And so, okay, right now it could be caring for an aging parent. It might be helping a child get started on their own. It might be homeschooling kids while trying to work yourself. It might be uh, being a supportive, loving caregiver uh, for your spouse. But identify what's that purpose right now. And the number two, is name your current temptation that can thwart that purpose. So once you have a sense of this is the direction God's leading me, then I think what you're going to discover is there are some temptations along the way that can distract you and, and stop you from that purpose. So, hey, go, hey, this is where I'm going, and this is what's standing in my way. This is what my opposition is. And then number three, Commit to your next step in resisting that temptation and pursuing that purpose. And so go, hey, this is the, the purpose I'm going towards. This is the temptation that's blocking me. Here's my next step in fighting that temptation. And here's my next step in pursuing that purpose. So I'd encourage you to get that simple. Uh, but sometimes writing those things down can bring huge clarity. And so for me, I try to say even, even for each given day, this is my purpose today. This is the thing that today's about, or this is what the season is about. And then, hey, this is the temptation that's, that's going to, I'm going to deal with. Okay, here's how I can fight that temptation. Here's how I can pursue that purpose. So those are the three next steps we wanted to share today to kind of give some feet to the message. Okay. So, you know, this is obviously a really big question. Huge question. Yeah. And uh, people may be kind of looking for some other resources to help them figure this out. Mm -hmm. Do you have any resources or anything? Yeah. Like so if um, we've been building a page throughout the series, uh, it's prescott.com, prescottcornerstone.com slash flourish. And we'll be adding resources later today there uh, with some books that I found really helpful. Uh, Chasing Daylight by Irma McManus is one. The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren is another. But I would encourage you that, I think our temptation is to fall victim to the second, you know, thing we covered in figuring out our purpose. Our temptation is to go, I'm going to read a book alone. I'm going to go through a study alone. And I just want to encourage you that not only are you not going to live out your purpose uh, alone, but you can't discover it alone. Part of how I've discovered it, my purpose, in the places where I feel like I have clarity is with people. 
And so I would encourage you to spend some time with people. Uh, one of the things that uh, Paula Ferris mentioned in her book, Called Out, which is a great book for this topic as well, is, is talking to the people you're closest to about their sense uh, of, of what you're good at and, and, and what God has called you to do. And so I would encourage you, don't fall victim to trying to discover your purpose by yourself. Look to the people who are closest to you and begin that as an ongoing dialogue with them. Okay, so in the sermon, you talked about some distractions that sometimes can get in the way of us finding our purpose. Do you have any suggestions or thoughts on what those could be? Or Yeah, I mean, I mentioned a big one, I think, is, is just the online, you know, whether you call it, um, you know, uh, online fighting or cancel culture or whatever. We, we're living in a world where I think we're allowing ourselves to get pulled into these battles that certainly are opportunities to not love people in Jesus' name, but also to distract us from our purpose. I think that's a big one. Uh, another one that I see is just that I think a lot of us are overwhelmed. And, and maybe more than we realize, we're looking to things to numb out. Uh, we're looking to things to kind of distract us and kind of give some lessening to these overwhelming feelings we have. And so I would encourage you that if you're finding all of your free time caught up in things that are kind of distractions or entertainments, um, things that really in the grand scheme of thing don't, don't, you know, make a difference in this world. I, I would encourage you to, to step back and go, is this a distraction? Now I'm not saying that it's, it's a bad thing to watch a show on Netflix. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to go out and have a hobby, but I think many of us end up unknowingly hiding behind hobbies and entertainments and other distractions because we're intimidated by or don't know our purpose. And so I just would say pay attention to those things that can be good things that can become distractions if they take up uh, an unhealthy or inordinate amount of your time or your life.